<laughs> you have to try and get me to say the dirty thing again. I mean, I think that's what your person does. <laughs> okay, that wasn't dirty. So, I mean, that was dirty, but that was just dirty. That wasn't like, you know, illiterately, literally um, a beautiful. But I think you saw my my tweet that I was so amused after you told me that you're interviewing students and they listen to PhD buzz that I was doing like this open day as our convener for our master's degree and one person was like I listen to PhD buzz and I was like oh my god so wow we yes. reached that phase it's sort of funny because then I, I messaged my my partner to be like I have fans um, and he's like yeah I've just and he's like I've just resigned myself to that because that's part of the Zion Yao package but yeah, you have an OnlyFans. No, that means something different. That does not... I do not have an OnlyFans. I would like to put that out there. I mean, no shade to sex workers. I think that's a very legitimate form of, of work. And obviously, I could, a lot of academics do it, but I do not have an OnlyFans. <laughs> There's some PhD the imposter out there on OnlyFans. Hey, everyone. Welcome to PhD Was Podcast. This is the first recording that we're doing in 2021. We made it! We survived. The crowd goes wild. God. <laughs> My God, I just like, it just feels so long. Like, like you know, I can only hope that it won't be two years before I see my family again. Since listeners, I didn't end up going home for Christmas because I did not want to be personally responsible for giving, bringing the COVID, um, the UK variant of COVID to Canada and then become like nat- nationally infamous forever. Um, and it was like a decision I made just a couple days before my flight. And, and that was really hard. It's the first time I've had Christmas without my family. And so I haven't seen them for a year now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really challenging. So I'm sure everyone knows, but I'm Liz Wayne, um, one of the people. And I am in Pittsburgh. I'm a professor. And Zine... Zine is in the UK. Yes, in London. Um, and I am a lecturer because the terminology is a bit different here. Um, and so I'd be sort of the equivalent of an, a tenure track assistant professor if I was in North America. Uh, but sometimes they use the term lecturer instead. Yeah. And I represent the humanities. Yay! Represents. And right now we all represent academics across the world who are tired. So tired. <laughs> and who were like, why are classes starting again? <laughs> why? Oh, yes. And especially like just, I really feel for the people that were already teaching during the week that the coup happened. Because, mm. oh my God, like, I'm so glad that my teaching started the week afterwards, because that was already exhausting enough. And it just so happened that I managed to time an email out to our master's students, giving them an extension on something for like the morning afterwards. And one of them emailed me like, oh, this was like so well-timed. Like we needed some good news about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was, was kind of the goals for 2021 and just like this new phase of a pandemic. Um, And like, how do you celebrate making it? And then just kind of seeing another hill come right up, you know, So like you want to be happy that 2020 is over and like you, we got it, we made it. And then like, nope, it's just December 37th now. (laughs) (sighs) It's not that. And so 
I remember that I, this break, I actually took a break. I didn't work. I did things that were enjoyable for me. So I, I, um, I read or I did, I like thought about things, but I just kind of wrote them down and planned for them. And I thought when I get back home, when I, when I start doing work again, that's when I'm going to work. And, um, when I got, when I got back, I'm like, okay, it's January 3rd, I'm going to start working now. And I was just exhausted. I didn't want to work. Yes. <laughs> it yes. was so hard to get back to work. And it felt like I need more time. Like I needed more than a week to just like shut my brain down. Um, it's so hard. And then the coup started happening and like all this political unrest. And I was just really anxious and nervous. Um, about multiple things in my life. And mm-hmm. I, I found it really stressful, yeah, to, to try to work. I think what was really helpful for me was just having people around me who were kind of reminding and validating my experience of being exhausted and just saying, why, why are you trying to work right now? Like, why are you doing that? Just let yourself, just don't do it. Just, just like throw all the papers in the air and walk away and try again tomorrow. Yes. No, it was, I, I also had that really strange feeling that week of both being terrified, but also bored and apathetic at the same time. Mm. Mm. Like, you mean like the week in January, like the, when the United States was going through a coup? Yeah. Like there's both like, because I, I was like, like probably a lot of people like constantly refreshing and often things were not updating fast enough. So I was both frantic, but also like, thinking of all the mundane things I had to get done with like teaching and admin and stuff like that. And I was supposed to be like doing other research stuff and like just feeling so frustrated about like, if this is what the stakes are in the world, I have so little control over it, but on everything else that I'm trying to do sort of like, you know, it's like, why are we going about like business as usual? Indeed, um, the major conference in literary studies, the Modern Language Association was like happening like the day after. And there's only these snarks, oh. snarking on um, academic literary studies Twitter about like, wait, people are supposed to just show up to their panel, digital panels, like nothing is going on. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I was one thing that I recognized was like this dual experience of of stress, maybe even multiple, there was just multi-layered because there's one thing about the fact that people really try to disrupt our democratic process. And then, you know, there's this like, why are these lies? Like, why do people not understand these are lies? And like, there's just so much evidence to suggest to know that this is not true, Mm -hmm. that the election was stolen or rigged or any way. And then um, the other thing that was happening was just, I was just in shock and awe and I couldn't not look away because of the racial aspects of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about how many people had been arrested, killed, you know, for less, yes. way less. And then there, I was just like, I can't believe these people are doing this and they aren't hurt or harmed they're just walking around nobody's doing anything and they walked right back out of the capitol and and i noticed this and then i just couldn't look away because i was like is this really happening is this what whiteness looks like Mm. oh my god and then i thought like how come no one else is noticing this and 
people were noticing they were just also people of color. We were like, what? They're like, of course, of course. And so it was just so wild to me. And I, and again, I couldn't look away both because it was like, how, oh my God, I can't, this is happening. But also like, I was just like, is this something's going to happen? Nothing, nothing's happening. Oh, so y'all not going to do nothing. Right. I'm double negativing this whole situation. Y'all aren't going to do anything right now. They're just going to walk away. They just going to go on the flight. They're literally post their, They were so unafraid of consequences. They are posting on Facebook and Twitter and just and letting Instagram. it. Yeah. They should have, they, they could have, it was like they were giving their social security information. So I just, I could not get over that. And that was hard for me. Yeah, it was hard. And it was hard for a community. And there was like so much public grief happening. I was going to say that, yeah, it just seemed, felt more, it was so imperative for me that, that I worked this into my teaching. And for that for that conference, I also worked into my paper because I was talking about, you know, systemic racism um, in different contexts. And um, since I'm now on the executive of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists, um, for for those of us, um, for some of us, like, it was like really important that we had our organization put together a statement because we do 19th century American studies. We talk about the origins of whites, you know, and the continuation of white supremacy and anti-black racism and settler colonialism and all this sort of thing. And it seemed really important for us that as a field, we're positioned to have to respond to this and that we have to remember that this is imperative in our research and our teaching and our communities, not just as a, like a, an empty rhetorical statement. And I can see why those type of statements might seem like it, it functions like that, because I think that um, like so many like media um, corporate outfits were doing that. But I think it's support to send a signal to our academic communities about our values, that we can name white supremacy, we can name anti-blackness in this way, um, because there's so many marginalized members of our scholarly community, um, especially um, Black and other scholars of color, who will feel so alone and are already feeling alone in academia in general. But to, And so we have to sort of signal to them about what sort of place we are and perhaps to signal the place that people that don't want to have those conversations in our field, in our research and teaching, what type of institute, organization we are and what their, their place is and that we are not a space for them. Yeah, it felt exhausting, you know, that the year started off with this level of complexity um, that I felt like we've been dealing with the whole year, um, at least, in, you know, and I'm speaking from the U.S. context where you have um, the social unrest that was happening throughout the summer and kind of extended um, and, and there's always these things happening, but the, the national attention that was getting and the response that was happening at the academic institutional level in trying to mount a response that, um, like you're kind of mentioning, it shows people what our values are, what we care about, but lots of people on the inside, our students and other faculty know that we care about them too and their, their voices matter. And so it was really really challenging to do that in the midst of a pandemic where we also have disparities occurring. And Mm -hmm. uh, we're also finding these messages of trying to give people to understand what appropriate safety measures are and how this is a health issue, not a, um, a political issue. So 
I think I just there's just overwhelming exhaustion and feeling like you you it never ends and you want some relief. Um, so you can just do the work. <laughs> so uh-huh. you can do the work that we wanted to do. You know, I would love to just think about my macrophages um, and my students, and there's all this other stuff happening. And I was also kind of um, therapy has really helped here. Yay. I was about um, how much pressure I was kind of putting on myself to continue to work mm-hmm. at the same pace in the midst of all that was going on or feeling like I had to support my students, feeling like I didn't want to let my colleagues down. So I have collaborators that are depending on me to do my part of something and I don't want to let them down. And that was really hard to kind of step back and say, well, I just can't, nothing's going to get done today. I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. When I felt like I was letting everyone down. (laughs) And I think sometimes being a faculty feels like that. It feels like you're, when you can't perform, you're letting people down. And I really had to rely on people around me to just kind of say, that's not realistic. Yeah. You're not letting everyone down. Everyone's also struggling. Yeah. And I say and, pr- perhaps especially for, as faculty of color, because it feels particularly personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I, I don't know. I think it's this conversation itself that's making me um, feel better. Yay. But when I was really going through it, it yeah, I mean... It was like, oh, I'm not working today. Or like even inauguration day, mm-hmm. yes, which was yesterday. And we were, we were recording this on the, the 21st of January. But I needed to watch. I mean, I didn't like, I didn't, I mean, it was in the background. And it, it, again, it was like, a, I need to make sure this happened. I need mm-hmm. to make sure that this is okay. I need to make sure that like, people seem safe. And I was like, this feels normal, but I don't know if I can trust it yet. So I I was still watching and it was taking up a part of my mind. And even like talking to my friends, it was clear that they were also having similar feelings and that there was a bit of relief happening that they could focus on other things now because this was like not, nothing happened. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Like one of my friends who's in the States sent me and another friend an email the the weekend after the coup attempt and was like, I hope that we have a very boring weekend. And it's just like, yes, boredom, please. I want a boring weekend. Yeah. Like apparently there's this, a curse and I don't know if this is just a, an apocryphal one in a novel I read once, which is a curse telling someone, may you live in interesting times, which might sound odd, but I think that this, is a pretty good example that we're living through. Like, this is too interesting. <laughs> like, okay, it'll be yeah. exciting to study at some point later with a, a distance, maybe, maybe, and probably not for people who are still experiencing, obviously, the aftermath of, of a lot of this structural violence. But like, no, you don't want to live through the p- exciting parts of the history book. <laughs> oh, no. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> it's too interesting and you don't, you don't want to be the interesting thing. You don't want to be like on the page of the history book. Not in this way. Mm-hmm. Have your work be interesting. 
Mm-hmm. This is too much like Shonda Rhimes. It's like she could, she is not a psychic, but it's like they are taken from the scandal plot lines like 100%. And it is just wild that um, it feels so much like a TV show, which was meant to be exaggerated and mm. unbelievable in a way. <sighs> so what goals do you have for 2021, Liz? It sounds like some of it has to th- feel about like, finding some sort of balance with, with work and uh, congratulations on starting therapy. Um, I've been doing <laughs> therapy for a while now too, and it's, it's very necessary at this moment, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It was just such a funny phrase. Congratulations for starting therapy. It's like, Hey, but, but uh, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but also kind of serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I did that, and I'm still doing it, and it's nice. And um, if for nothing else, it's nice to have a black box that's just like, here, take all of this stuff going on in my head. Mm. <laughs> um, and, like, this is a space where that can happen, so it feels good. Um, goals for 2021. Um so I like to use the, I use a full focus planner and I'm always, and it has parts where you write down like your goals and kind of your smart, make them smart goals. So how do you try to make them achievable and attainable and measurable? I forget what the acronym actually stands for, but it involves those types of things. Oh my God. I'm sure Erica loves that. I think. Oh, she does? <laughs> I, I think so. I feel like the first time I heard smart as an, as an acronym that way was from Erica our old boss at Cornell. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, but SMART goals are pretty popularized. They're pretty, you're in management. Yeah, you you know about a SMART goal. Um, so I, I have some goals to write grants, to write papers, and they're research papers. But the other thing I, I would like to write this piece on um, amino politics, biopolitics, which is, we talked about this a little bit, because uh, I need your help. <laughs> I'm here. Because this is, it's like um, venturing into your world. Don't, don't, don't. And you're so much better at this than I am. And I want to figure out how to write my ideas. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that's one of the things I want to do. I think I also had like, um, health goals. And so, um, things that will help me be healthier and be alive. Um, which I know that maybe that sounds like I'm being, um, uh, dramatic, but I'm not actually. So, so just making sure that I'm healthy and kind of making that a priority for 2021. Mm-hmm. Cause if I'm not here, I'm not healthy. Like I can't do my work. So I'm like, what'll be the point of all the worry? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, those are like my biggest goals right now. And just to remind myself that I'm doing okay. And then I, I think what I also did, and maybe we can talk about this later was I actually did make, when I made a list of goals for 2021, I also, took the time to write down what I think I did well in 2020 or what I was really 
good or appreciative of. I made myself reflect and go, oh, wait, that that actually was okay. That was uh-huh. not bad. I looked at what my 2020 goals were in January and I said, oh, okay, this actually did work. I forgot about that, but I actually did do that. Um, and I think that's also good to remind yourself of the things you did do well because we often, when you're looking forward, you don't really look back and not just look back, but bring bring yourself up to speed mm-hmm. so you can truly move forward. No, I think that's so good because I actually found it very difficult to write down my goals for this year because I felt like they're basically the same as last year because I didn't get that much headway in terms of like some of my goals were like, you know, get better at being happy. And that's still really hard for me. That's um, yeah. And some of these will just be ongoing. And I didn't, I didn't actually think to, to reflect on all the things I've accomplished. I think sort of like, like Liz, like I really leaned into overwork as a coping mechanism, which, cause it's always been a coping mechanism for me. And I'm sure it's the case for a, a lot of um, academics, especially of our generation where like our success is predicated on the sort of frantic amount of work, which is not sustainable, but that's also the only thing, well, at least for me, how I feel like it's what makes me successful. So it ends up being this feedback loop where like an ultimately damaging lifestyle is the thing that I'm being rewarded for, but I can't maintain that forever. And I just, I wrote so much last year, even though I went through, even though it was so hard. And now I realize that it's just not, it isn't sustainable. And what does it look like to try and make it more sustainable? And things like I need to stretch more, honestly. Right? Like, oh, stretching is so boring, though. Oh, so boring. It's not boring but, when I do it. It's just hard. <laughs> but because like over, because I, I don't know how to, how to do things in moderation. So when I, I managed to also take a break like Liz, but then with my partner, we ran every day for the couple of weeks. And usually I, mm-hmm. I run every other day because you're supposed to rest. And you are supposed to rest because then I ended up getting this pain in my hip that has sort of stayed there. It's very annoying. And so it's like, I have to know how to take breaks better and not just push through pain. Yeah. That's a really good goal, Zine. Yeah. In a more concrete way, though, my book is coming out later this year. Yay. So so we should talk about that at some point. But And I did a tarot reading for myself. Liz, are you still doing tarot? I am not doing I haven't done it recently. What is your tarot? What? did you get from your tail reading? Oh, well, first, when is your, what, what quarter is your book coming out? When? Um, it's coming. It's supposed to be in, in the fall catalog from Duke university press. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. So very excited about that. Um, but yeah, I guess I usually do tarot, uh, like a big tarot reading, like a, a Celtic cross. If our listeners know what that means for only major milestones, like my birthday or new year. And so I did a Celtic cross and it was a very powerful, reading where I got a lot of major arcana and it was, it made a ton of sense. And it was just like, for me, tarot was just so clarifying in terms of narratives about how I think about myself and also illuminating things that I don't remind myself and that there's a lot of good things in my life that I look away from too quickly. Cause once I accomplish things, I just forget about them. And then I feel like I'm worthless and I've done nothing. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that the tarot led you in the right path. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done tarot in a while. Um, 
Yeah, I think last year was my last reading. Like I, I like to get it kind of, oh no, I can think in the summer was when my last reading was. Um, yeah, like I have friends who do daily practices and I guess I, I tried that for a while as a way of sort of monitoring myself. But for me, I think it's the, the specialness of the occasion, which is important. Mm hmm. Yeah, it has to feel right. I don't know. It has to feel like, yeah, I, I want this. I have a clear question or a clear, clear, like, um, desire for direction mm -hmm. that I find really useful for going into doing a tarot reading. And you guys should also listen to our tarot episode. I forget when we recorded it, but it is there and it was very cool. Also, Zion wrote an article about tarot, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, but should I think this volume is supposed to be coming out either this year or next year, finally, in this um, queer uh, queer and Asian America 2.0 volume from Temple University Press, which I'm very excited about, thinking about queer people of color's uses of tarot and as a means of self-making and self-definition and self-understanding. It's a lot of self. I like it. <laughs> it's It's hard. I think that it's it's sort of funny the way that academia can be so individualistic in some ways, but also like it just preys on your self sense of self at the same time. PhD Diva's podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content. And to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PhD Diva's podcast. Better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. Yeah, how exciting this is all going to be. Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under Page Divas Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, it takes a lot of mental fort fort fortuity? Fortitude? Fortitude. I am so sorry. It takes a lot of mental fortitude to do this job because you, you have to be willing to learn new things, which means accepting what you don't know. But you also have to be the person who knows everything. Um, and, uh, or like you have to be really uncomfortable with uncertainty. Mm, I feel like that's something I should emphasize more to my students. Because I guess to, to sort of loop back to the beginning when we're uh, talking about both of us now being in the position of giving presentations or interviewing potential students, like, yeah, like, how do you, Liz, reflect on, like, the journey that you've had and how do you represent it to your students? I, I missed the last part. How do I do what? Oh, sorry. How do you reflect on your journey and how do you represent it to your students? Because I feel like a question that I often get is like, oh, so... Can I go on to academia? And then I have to be like, well, and then I try to like <laughs> tell them like all the news sources to follow about what the state state of the job market is and stuff like that because I want them to be as informed as possible. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, like a true academic, I will say it's complicated. It depends well. But I think it depends on um, which stage a person is asking me that question. Um, and then um, I usually, if someone's asking me like how to get to academia, I think I tell them their answer. They're asking the wrong question. Mm. Um, because I think that you should be, I think a better or a kind of more informed way would be to find your way to academia. But how am I saying this? Um, um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, T- take I'm a moment to think. Both being abstract and like maybe I should be more specific. So when when students kind of ask me about my path, I just tell them I follow really interesting questions, and I let the questions kind of lead the path um, into the work. And that I've always tried to um, learn more about the profession while I'm doing the work. And I've tried to um, make meaningful decisions. And you can't do that if you don't know what the other side of the world is like. Mm. And so for me, as a scientist, it's the question of, can you do the work that you want to do in academia? So do you really want to be a professor? Or do you want to do this in industry? And so I thought about joining industry. And I thought of, and I actively read about it, interviewed and did the things. And that really helped me understand what the differences are and also what the differences are not because the spaces are quite similar. Hmm. Um, And I think that that breadth of experience helped me understand what I needed, but also like, why do I want to do it in academia? And so that was one question. And the other question was like, can I do it in academia? Do I want to do it? And like, am I doing the appropriate things to make myself qualified for this job? Um, and so that took a whole bunch of other types of work and networking, thinking, writing, speaking to, to get that done. And even then, I still tell people. So at the postdoc stage, what I tell people is that I still didn't know I was going to be a professor until the moment I became a professor. Mm-hmm. Or, or even maybe like I didn't really know this is going to work until I started getting callbacks. And so up until that point, you know, you're building and you're working on stuff. But there is now you're really up to that luck stage or not luck. It's educated luck, maybe. But, yes. you know, you know what I'm saying? And so exactly, I think yeah. that's also a part of it. But that's also baked into understanding what your profession and what your field is, which I think is what you were saying, because you asked you tell people to go to get that information by reading about the field and and reading the literature on the job stats and, and all these other things. And I've always tried to have like a, let me understand and let me make really strategic moves to figure out, well, where am I going to fit? Who's going to want me kind of things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I feel like that was insubstantial as an answer. Um, but I tell them it's about the journey and I've always tried to pivot so that even if academia doesn't work, if what I really want to do is do research, there's plenty of avenues to do that. 
it was doing the research and being able to mentor the students. I was like, okay, this is why I think I should be in academia. And then I think it was also hitting the buttons that resonated with other professors who were like, yeah, that's the person that we want to be in academia. Mm-hmm. And then it was also like, okay, but who's going to buy it? <laughs> and like, oh, a few people did. <laughs> like, I guess I can be a professor now. Woo. And now it's trying to keep my job. <laughs> oh, the fun. Anyway, continue. You were saying what you say to students and how you want them to be informed. Mm-hmm. I tell them to read Times Higher Education if they're interested in the UK. If they're interested in North America, follow the Chronicle of Higher Ed and in- Inside Higher Ed. I also am very explicit that, that going into academia and the humanities is not a guarantee of a secure middle-class job <laughs> and that there's a lot of precarity that's involved. Um, that is a very rewarding career, but like there's a lot of contingency and to know that people can do other things in the, with a humanities PhD, but that what that looks like is something that you're not going to know until it happens. Unfortunately, I think that's just definitely been the case for a lot of friends of mine who have definitely found happiness and fulfillment in other paths. But I know that it was a struggle to get there. And so unlike Liz, I can't say that I had questions that I was going to be able to explore in other arenas because I actually don't know. And I perhaps feel the precarity luck of it, particularly acutely because like I had my questions and all the hard work that I did, but ultimately like the fact that Cornell accepted me for the PhD, the fact that I got the postdoc that I did, it's like I both worked really hard, but if it didn't work out, I'm not quite sure what would have happened. Um, I guess there's something about my academic journey, which has also been very adventurous and it's exciting, but also terrifying precisely because I don't know where it's going to lead. And I still often think about the fact that I'm in London is not a place I thought I'd ever end up living and how remarkable that is, even if now I'm paying London rent, but don't get to actually experience London because we're in a pandemic lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I, this, I, oh, yeah. I was going to say a silly thing, speaking of London, that Liz learned a new word today because of the tweet that I did. Oh, I knew the word. I was just questioning you using it. Why? But chuffed is my favorite British word. (laughs) It's really cute because chuffed always makes me think of a little fat round bird that is very pleased with itself. And it starts puffing itself up, you know, like puffing up all its feathers to go poof, 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 poof. And that's what chuffed is in my head. I mean, chuffed is a cute word. I'm just like, chuff, chuff, chuff. Pretty chuffed. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Chuffed though. All right. (laughs) You know, I will say that when I was a postdoc and a grad student, I had this kind of break or bust this idea of like, wait, what else am I qualified for? Oh, my God. Am I not? I'm not qualified for anything, especially when I got my Ph.D., because I realized at that point when I was applying for jobs that I actually had no work experience. And I'm like, what do you mean I have no work experience? What do you mean you just don't want me? You you still have to work after a Ph.D. to get an entry level job? What? So that was. That was definitely hard um, and was what pushed me to look for other opportunities or to at least become aware of them or to broaden my network so that the pivot wouldn't be that hard. 
mm-hmm. um, because of the fear of realizing that I didn't have any backup options. Um, and I was just an overqualified backup option. Um, and um, <laughs> I think if I think about it deeply, deep enough, if I go down that rabbit hole, I'll feel like I don't have, I'm only meant to do this one job, but I, I recognize that I'm lucky. I am fortunate to have this job. <clears throat> um, yeah, I recognize that I'm fortunate and I try to tell people how best I know how to get the jobs, um, but to also have other opportunities um, that they have some skills that they're leaving with. It is challenging, though. And I think I also benefit from having, when I talk to students, a lot of them say they want to go to industry. I'm like, yes. And it's it's like, it's not that I don't want people to go to academia, but it feels easier for me. Like, I'm not lying to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not, um, I'm not, when someone says, oh, I want to go to industry, I'm like, okay, great. Let's help you get there. We can do this. Let's do this. When someone says, let's go to academia, I'm also saying, great, let's help you get there. But it's also like, I don't know. You, you know, I don't know. Um, or like, if anything, I'm saying, great, now let's help you do enough of good work that when you graduate, I can hand you off to that postdoc that you really need to get to get that job. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm handing off to a different stage. Um, man. It's hard because I think that there's such a lot of responsibility and you feel responsible for your students and to know that if they want to go into academia and to know that, you know, it feels like, you know, we, well, I feel like I survived by the skin of my teeth kind of thing to know that others will go through that as well. If they're successful is, is difficult. And I guess I feel more in the UK system than I would if I was in North America, because in the UK, um, we interview students who want to work with us, which is not typical in the humanities because typically you just apply and you go through like a cent- the central grad- graduate school stuff and like interviews are not that common. But here it's like you apply directly to the um, to the faculty member that you want to work with and then they interview interview you, which I guess is like the standard thing in STEM, but it isn't for me. And so it's also the oddness for me of interviewing in a system that I myself am not familiar with. And also... I feel very insecure about because then it's like, I'm also trying to help students through a system that I myself have not experienced. Mm. You mean in terms of the interview process? Or in terms mean- of the interview process, but also like what the PhD looks like in the UK, because it's so different. Mm, I see. Yeah. Like it's, it's only three years. Um, it's a very different focuses. Uh, the undergraduate experience is so different. The way the UK academia is organized is different. And so I think it one reason why I got my position is because I showed that I could I moved between national contexts between Canadian and American and so I'm used to doing that but at the same time like I am lacking the lived experience of what it means to do a PhD in this very different system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I understand a little bit. Just having um I got my PhD in biomedical engineering and then trying to understand what is chemical engineering? What? How do I make sure that I'm giving them that experience? Not the same. I mean, I think not not truly the same, but it is interesting. It is interesting being a part of the process <clears throat> and the power that we or 
power slash responsibility that we're given to make the right decisions mm-hmm. and, and kind of deal with the consequences of those decisions, whether they're good or bad consequences. I guess to go back to one of our opening topics, since we're talking about the impact of the insurrection and the inauguration on what our work lives look like, I was wondering, it, it it's easier for me to be able to bring these topics into my classrooms, but is this something that you end up addressing in your teaching or like your meetings with um, your students? Mm, um, yeah. Um, hmm. So what I would say is, um, to give an example, when um, the protests were breaking out over the U.S. in response to George Floyd, I took one of my lab meetings to um, have a round, like a discussion. And it, I gave people the opportunity to just say like what they were feeling or what was stressing them out about the situation. Um and what they were worried about. And we kind of all talked about it. <clears throat> we just kind of said what we thought. And then I, <laughs> then we played a, a online game because, you know, we we all meet virtually to do this and we played like a, a code words game or something. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was very funny because I was on one of the teams and it was like, and I think I helped my team lose because they were all, I said something like this because I say it doesn't get right <laughs> when we lost. Because you were like, well, Liz said this is this answer. It was the wrong answer. <laughs> I think moments like that or just kind of, if anything, taking that moment of silence or the moment of opportunity to say, hey, something's happening. Let's discuss this um, and how this is happening. Um, that is something that kind of happens before and after the class. And then there is this general push, um, at least at Carnegie Mellon and engineering, to incorporate ethics and diversity, equity, and inclusion into engineering courses. And I think that we're starting that process of trying to really figure out how to do that. And for me, um, I already, I have a lecture coming up in my amino engineering class that's about biopolitics and ethics of amino engineering. I try to, so I do that in ways where that's like an explicit, let's talk about ethics and engineering. And by the way, it's like, this is a conversation about you. Like sometimes mm. it's that level of a conversation, but also just, I think, expanding the breadth of opportunities that they're talking about. So even if they're just opportunity to say like, we're, we're studying this disease and this drug, but how does the financial cost of it affect who gets this drug or mm-hmm. how does distribution How's that affected? And so there are ways to actually talk about the research that bring up points of um, diversity, equity, inclusion, because they might bring up gender, race, and class, or um, orient, sexual orientation. Um, and to me, that makes the engineering problem more interesting. Engineers are always looking for solutions. Um, and sometimes DEI is the actual question. Mm. And I think helping people understand that and understand that there's value and in answering those types of questions, that's kind of what I am going to, I'm considering like a career long pursuit. Um, and, you know, every time you teach a class, you get better at integrating 
new topics. And this is definitely the topic that how do I integrate that for people so that they see themselves and their experiences in the examples and the problems that they're solving and how they feel like they can now solve that problem. They now have the power, expertise, the voice and the pedigree now to go out and do that problem solving. Mm -hmm. I think that's so, so powerful, important that like, there's such a way that there's been a push for like EDI stuff, broadly speaking, but it's so easy for people to tack it on, but you're making it like essential. It's not just like you do, you do the engineering solution and then you look at the EDI. Actually, it's part of the framework. It reminds me of the interview I did, uh, I guess over a year ago with Faraha Asani, um, who's also a STEM person. And she was talking about the yeah, building that into the, into the, how we understand the scientific method itself. Um, again, rather than having it be addition. And I think what both of you are doing is, is so important that is only going to benefit the, the upcoming generation of, of STEM academics yeah, and <clears throat> professionals. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate this line of thinking because <clears throat> sometimes I think that um, there are stages to DEI, or I guess you guys say EDI, but they're the same letters, just different organization. Mm-hmm. Um. And there are ways in which my presence is like, <laughs> I am the DEI, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think representation is great. That's often just the first stage. In other words, like, it's not, I don't think it's actually sufficient just to say that we have, a, it's good, it's not enough just to say that there's a person in the room. You also have to, um, their values there are practices, there are ways to encourage and promote and to think critically about what it means to have the person and places and things in the room. Mm-hmm. And you want people to think about their place within that. Um, not just, oh, we have a black person in the room or we have a woman in the room or we have a black woman in the room. Great. We, we checked all our boxes. Now we're done with the whole conversation. And so, you know, there's this, and I was just thinking, reflecting on that because there's a way in which um, as a woman, yeah, I'm going to talk about how maternal health is important to be engineered. <laughs> we, we deserve therapeutics as well because I'm a woman. So, yeah, I'm going to mention this. But also, you shouldn't have to be a woman to just think about the fact that these are areas of interest that are useful, right? Uh-huh. And so how do you – so part of it is like I get to do these things because they were interesting to me and I get to present them. And that's like the first level of why it's important to have faculty of diverse spectrum or diverse um, backgrounds in places of position to be able to educate because we're thinking about those things, but it shouldn't also, because it's not also just our responsibility to do that, or, you know, it shouldn't just be about like, having that one person in the room, it has to be infused into the courses and the curriculum and the way of thinking to actually get more impact on the students so that they think, no, this is a paradigm of thought for engineering and not just a, well, if I want to have EDI, um, just hire a black person and you're done. Mm. Yeah. I feel like being faculty has meant that like all the we've always had these commitments, but now we're in a position to be able to do something more, but also it's like the time scale of this change. Now we know that this is going to take decades, I think, mm-hmm. because this is also a pipeline problem. This is an inter- like, and it's just, it, it, it's, 
I think exciting to be able to the position to be part of this journey, but also it's just such a long one. Like my institution is reckoning with its past with the eugenics um, because Francis Galton, who coined the term eugenics, like was associated with UCL and a number of his disciples like Carl P- um, Pearson, who was really influential, obviously, um, were at UCL. And so this, this multi-pronged thing that is apology, but also it's going to be like increasing funding for, um, you know, students, students of color, disabled students. It's about increasing access. It's about, um, giving out introduction, um, education about this to everyone, regardless of discipline, also in relation to people's disciplines. It's so multifaceted in terms of how we have to address this, this historical legacy, which is still affecting people today. And just knowing that like that legacy is from the 19th century is going to probably take just as long to even try to start addressing some of these things. And obviously like the call for more faculty calls, particularly black faculty is a big part of it. And of course that in and of itself is, is such a multi tiered (laughs) process. (laughs) Where in the UK, if I keep reminding people, there are only 18 black women who are full professors in any discipline. In any discipline. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And people are like, you mean 1,800? 18,000? Or you're like, oh, just the humanities? No, any discipline. Any. (laughs) Any discipline. Right. And I think like um, from 2019, so I think the numbers increased, but not not significantly. But... um, 537 black women professors in the U.S. in engineering, period. Just 537 in engineering faculty members who are black women um, across, I think, all of the, yeah, all of the U.S. institutions. So that, I mean, there's, these are really small numbers and, um, yeah. Um <laughs> It feels, it has always felt interesting because, uh, and I think we talked about this before, but this idea that recognizing how few there are and like thinking to myself, like, okay, like it feels like every time I teach, I'm breaking some record because this is the first time they've had a black female professor. And this might, like, it might be the first time they've ever had a black female professor. And then it might be the first one for engineering and then their first for something else. And then their first for something else. And, you know, it's going to keep happening year after year where I'm going to keep being that, that cohorts first. But on the flip side of that, now they can say they've had one, <laughs> but then what does that mean? And, um, yeah, it's just interesting. Or like now, like, oh my God, am I the first time this black person's ever had the experience of having someone with some shared background with them in the room. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's like a powerful thing to think about, um, and a lot of responsibility, but also that's why I don't think about that often because ultimately I'm just here. I no, really like I have to, I think those conversations are important and they can be had, but I also have to make sure like that I'm just, well, just teach. And again, do, I can do framework things. I'm really interested. The visual, the representation and visualization, now that I'm here, that will take care of itself naturally. But I am here to encourage thinking and um, thought. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I can actually direct. And I will let the other stuff do its work passively. Because I don't have time. I don't have the time to do everything. So, 
And there's also the way that the fixation on first ends up obscuring the question yeah. of like, what does it mean to not be the last and what, how do you sustain that? But also it becomes a, a narrative of newness that often erase, erases other histories um, and other legacies that come before as well. I guess it's also interesting. We're talking so much about thinking about legacy and so forth because we're at the start of another decade. Ooh. You just think about that, Liz, like this is our stepping into the, the 2020s yeah like we're like the 20 flappers right yeah like the generation we're we're uh, shaking it up here <laughs> we have the beaded dresses <laughs> and stuff like that yeah, I, it's kind of cool to be a part of the generation just to shape and um make an impact where do you think you will be in a decade liz Oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> Just springing that on you. <laughs> no, I, gen- I don't know. Where do you think you're going to be? Oh my God. I guess I, I wonder if I'll be still in the UK. Mm. I mean, I don't have any plans to move, but also like, what if the government swings even further right and they don't want to renew my visa for some reason? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I just hope to be fabulous still. <laughs> that's the best answer possible. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I don't think that's going to be in question, honestly. I feel like wherever you're going to be, it's going to be fabulous, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's probably the, the only surety that I, the only surety that I feel is that you'll still be fabulous. Thank you, Liz. And same to you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a good point to wrap up at. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. So I just want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast, listening to us all these years and um, to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you for supporting us. We do have some content coming out for you guys very soon. So look forward to that. And um, yeah, just thank you so much. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. Mm -hmm. All right. See you guys or listen to you guys. I always say see you guys like I can actually (laughs) see you. And I'm like, why do I keep saying this? And I do it every time. I know. We're just such a visually oriented culture. (laughs) We're so visual. We're so visual, guys.